I'm Elaine Monaghan and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars and writers and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Steve Raymer, an American photojournalist, author and educator who spent over two decades as a National Geographic staff photographer capturing images of life in more than 100 countries. Steve joined the faculty of Indiana University's Journalism School in 1995 and is now a professor emeritus at IU's Media School, where he continues to teach media ethics to budding storytellers through his experiences covering famines in Bangladesh, Ethiopia, numerous conflicts and humanitarian crises in South and Southeast Asia, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, to name just a few. Steve, who served as director of the National Geographic Society News Service in Washington, D.C. from 1989 to 1995, won the coveted Magazine Photographer of the Year Award from the National Press Photographers Association and the University of Missouri for his reporting on the global hunger crisis in 1976. He has also received a citation for excellence in foreign reporting from the Overseas Press Club of America and numerous first place awards from the White House News Photographers Association. Steve was born in Beloit, Wisconsin, where his father, Lawrence Larry Raymer, was executive editor of the Beloit Daily News. His studies in journalism at the University of Wisconsin-Madison were interrupted by a stint in Vietnam as an artillery and public affairs officer in the US Army, and he completed a master's in journalism after his return. Earlier this year, Indiana University Press published Steve's latest book, Somewhere West of Lonely, My Life in Pictures, to very positive reviews. And he was recently invited to attend a screening about his book in Perpignan, France, at Visa pour l'image. I am delighted to speak with him here in Bloomington today. Steve, thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Elaine, and thank you, too, for that very generous introduction. I, I barely recognize the person <laughs> you're talking about. Well, it wasn't hard to find, Steve, <laughs> and it's all true. <laughs> so, Steve, it's sort of hard to know where to start because you've done so much, but it felt like a natural place to start to ask you about the question of conflict because you first really experienced conflict, I guess, on your campus taking pictures of violent protest against Vietnam. But then, or around the same time, you found yourself in Vietnam as a soldier. Can you tell us about that? That's a really good question and a kind of a, a, a difficult one to delve into, uh, Elaine, because frankly speaking, I never set out to be a photographer of conflict or war or even famine for that matter. And you're right. During my undergraduate years at Madison, it was a campus in flames, and I was the campus correspondent for the Milwaukee Journal, and very frequently I'd be covering student protests or the occupation of some building or the use of tear gas in the library at University of Wisconsin, and I'd be rushing home to develop my film and, and get my negatives on the 
Greyhound bus to Milwaukee or to the Associated Press in Chicago or even the New York Times Bureau in Chicago, and then sort of resuming my studies later in the evening. Vietnam was a situation where, yes, I was an artillery officer and then a public affairs officer, but officers really weren't allowed to carry cameras. Every time I had a camera with me, I seemed to get in trouble. Some Mm -hmm. colonel would yell at me. But uh, yes, Vietnam, I mean, like everyone who served there, I had friends whom I lost. I did have a role at the end of my tour in preparing and participating in the five o'clock follies, which were actually held at 445, the daily news briefing, the Rex Hotel for the media. And I came back from Vietnam very ambivalent about the war, but very ambivalent about government in general because I saw so much lying, so much lying at the five o'clock follies and in the operation of the joint U.S. Public Affairs Office where I worked. So I don't know what made me more angry in some ways, losing friends or just the deception by the government. But in any event, while I was in graduate school, at the end of graduate school, the Associated Press offered me a job back in Vietnam, but it was an editing job rather than a photography job. And I thought, well, if I want to go back to being scared every day of being killed or sort of the endlessness of the conflict in Vietnam, at least I was going to go as a photographer. So I turned down that job and actually was quite happy in many ways living in Madison, Wisconsin. And within months of finishing graduate school, National Geographic offered me a job. Now, little did I know that some of these big global stories, stories about, say, for example, the uh, world hunger crisis or the opium poppy, the plant for good and evil, I think was its title, or the international illegal trade in endangered animals and products from endangered animals all over the world, or accompanying the International Committee of the Red Cross to 14 wars over eight months to see the ICRC, the keepers of the Geneva Conventions. Little did I know that some of these major kind of global uh, reportage would take me into a good deal of conflict. But as I say, I, I never set out to do this. I just sort of found myself in the middle of it, as many other writers like yourself, or correspondents like yourself, and photojournalists and videographers. Um, you know, we don't train for what becomes the news. We cover the news as it unfolds. Right. And in fact, in your book, Somewhere West of Lonely, you dedicate it to colleagues, not soldiers, although you obviously lost people when you were serving in Vietnam, I'm sure. But you dedicate it to fellow journalists or photojournalists who've been killed, you could say, in the line of duty. Of course, including Anya Niedringhaus, who was killed Mm. in Afghanistan, and other colleagues of yours. I kind of have to ask you, why do you do it? It's interesting, Elaine. I received an email from the director of IU Press one afternoon last fall, just about not even a year ago. And he said, I need your dedication by tomorrow morning. And it was the easiest piece of writing I've ever done because, you know, we all lose friends if we stay in journalism long enough. In fact, I tell students this very honestly. If you stay in journalism long enough, you're going to know people who get killed. It's just part and parcel of trying to be a faithful witness to the world. But I had, uh, yes, I had a number of very good friends killed in Vietnam. But the number of friends I've lost during a long career 
it sort of weighs on me, and I've been asked this a couple of times. Uh, British journalists asked me not so long ago, why do you still do this at the age of 72? Why aren't you happily retired? And I said, nobody's ever asked me that question, but frankly speaking, I've had too many friends die too early. And as long as I still have two legs and both eyes and reasonably good vision, I owe it to them, if nothing else, to keep doing what I do because they never had the opportunity to. And as we look not just to the conflict in Vietnam, but if we look at the accidents in which our friends are killed, if we look at the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, if we look at some of the smaller civil conflicts, journalism is under fire. I mean, President Trump may call us enemies of the people, but if you believe what the Committee to Protect Journalists say, why journalism is a risky profession around the world. Russia, never more so perhaps, or Turkey, or certainly various countries in Africa, the Near East. So I think that to honor people that you really love and respect, it was the easiest piece of writing I've ever done. Would you say you're lucky to be alive? (laughs) My wife says that I'm lucky to be alive, and I guess both of my daughters do. I don't feel like I've led a charmed life until I add up the accidents the near misses and the uh, illnesses and broken bones. And then I I guess I am lucky to be alive, Elaine. And there have been some very serious near misses. I write in the book about reporting on the global hunger crisis. And uh, I followed a shipment of rice that was grown in Northern California. In fact, I saw it being harvested. And I followed my rice to Cambodia where uh, in 1974, where Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, was just swollen with refugees. And it was being starved to death by the Khmer Rouge. And I went out to see the rice being distributed, the American rice being distributed, sacks of rice, and then a, a queen new sarong, and then several bars of soap, all nicely stacked. And the Khmer Rouge started firing rockets and mortars into the camp at that very minute. And I was pretty badly hurt. And some nice young people from who were French, that's all I know is they were French went to the American embassy, afraid to move me. And out come diplomats and military attaches, and first a helicopter to a hospital, and then an airplane ride to Utapau, Thailand, to be treated at a big American Air Force hospital in southern Thailand. I was lucky, really lucky, but I don't know who to thank. And as I wrote in the book, not knowing who to thank for being alive, except for these anonymous diplomats and military attaches and people I know were connected with the U.S. government. I've tried to make it a policy of when I go to a city or a country for an extended period of time to always go to the American embassy or the U.S. consulate and extend, you know, an opportunity to say I'd love to do a lecture, I'd love to do a press club presentation or to meet with local journalists because it's the only way I can think of to repay a debt that, you know, I could never repay. This is Profiles, and I'm Elaine Monaghan, here with Steve Raymer. In your book, you describe quite shockingly how you were injured with shrapnel in your back, which sounds... My back, yes. Terrible. I mean, well, it must have been agonising, or did you 
it, you know, it didn't hurt after a certain point with right. a, enough drugs and IV lines. The interesting thing for me was that that was the day that Richard Nixon resigned the presidency in disgrace, August 9th, 1974. And of course, what I remember from the recovery room of the American Air Force Hospital is calling my parents in Wisconsin, who were ardent Republicans, and my mother was crying. And I said, no, Mom, I, I'm going to be fine. The doctors assured me. She said, oh, I know you'll be okay. I'm crying for poor Mr. Nixon. <laughs> well, perhaps you'd trained her well <laughs> to expect that kind of phone call. Perhaps. Uh, you know, the kid who was always getting into trouble or getting sick. But, yes, I, I don't like to dwell on it. But I, I had kind of a reputation at National Geographic, and I have to be honest about that, is what's going to happen to Steve on this trip? You know, what is he going to get shot again, or will he fall ill, or how many bones will he break, and so forth. And, and again, I'm probably an unlikely person to have been either a National Geographic photographer or continuing that work here at Indiana University doing books in that I was never an athlete, and I think, frankly speaking, to be an athlete would be an extra skill to be a photojournalist. <laughs> I, I did take the scuba diving class for four weeks at National Geographic's request and did pass that, but that's my only athletic feat. It seems like you were doing plenty of physical exercise if you managed to cover more than 100 countries. Oh. Presumably you were covering a lot of territory. Although quite a lot of it seems to have been by helicopter. That seems to be a theme in your life. Well, the helicopter is a theme in my life, and I write about it partly because I had three National Geographic colleagues killed in helicopter crashes. And, and within a you know a sort of succession, I was in a helicopter crash myself in Vietnam where a soldier shot a bullet through the roof of the helicopter and into the engine. And I was in another helicopter crash in Australia. And I have a friend who's a captain for Emirates Airlines. He flies the big A380 double-decker jumbo. And he said, Steve, I really don't want you to get in another helicopter. <laughs> but, you know, there was a timing lane that we used, we being the National Geographic photographers, where we used the helicopter as a rental car to get to inaccessible places. There was the general requirement in doing articles about cities and countries for a spectacular aerial photograph or two in an article to try to show people, try to look at a familiar subject in a different way or to try to see something that maybe has never been seen in quite the same way. And, of course, when you get up in the air, you, you know, the shape and design and, and light can really transform a subject so, yes, and of course, in conflict, why helicopter is sort of a, a means of transportation that you have no control over. But uh, today, of course, you know, I think many of the pictures that I would have done by helicopter at National Geographic, you could do them with a drone today. Okay. So that part of the job is something like all other parts of all professions has changed. Right. Yeah. Have you played around with a drone? And what do you think of drone footage? Is it something that intrigues you? Well, I have played around with a drone, and I found how difficult it is to do still photography with a drone. It's much like hovering a helicopter. If you're going to do video, there's no problem. You just go a little slower. But to hover the drone, it sort of requires the skill of a helicopter pilot. My 12-year-old granddaughter, who is bent on being a cadet at the Air Force Academy already, she has a drone. And uh, she was recently visiting us here in town. And I would say that my granddaughter is uh, way ahead of me. I have no particular interest in drone photography. I feel like I've seen the world from all kinds of angles. And I would 
sort of prefer the how we mastered doing photography when, you know, I, there was a time when photography was hard. Well before the digital era, we had a lot more control over the image, but it was all sort of forethought or guess or based on experience. So there's one picture in the book of Mount St. Helens, the volcano in the state of Washington, after it had exploded and the top 1,500 feet of the mountain was blown off on the whole north face, I got the FAA to give me permission to fly in a helicopter just at dusk over the volcano, but it was actually just slightly too high for the range of the helicopter, or the ceiling, I should say, of the helicopter. So the pilot and I circled around off in the area of Mount St. Helens till we burned up almost all of our fuel. And he said, okay, we're going to go up. I got everything all set for you. And he said, but it's going to be one pass and it's going to be very, very fast around the rim of the volcano. Now, it turned out to make a pretty spectacular picture at dusk, but it was a risk. Right. And I would, I guess, prefer to think about what it was required to get a great photo <laughs> when photography was still hard. <laughs> You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Elaine Monaghan. Our guest today is photojournalist Steve Raymer, a professor emeritus at IU's Media School who spent more than two decades as National Geographic photojournalist. He's here to tell us about his life in pictures and to share stories beautifully told in his latest book, published by Indiana University Press, Somewhere West of Lonely. Steve, we've been talking about helicopters, which means I have to, of course, introduce this theme of the title of your book. And I hope you don't mind if I read just a little bit so that our listeners can understand where this somewhere west of lonely idea came from. It's quite intriguing because when you try to find this place, and we know it's a place because it has a capital L (laughs) called Lonely, you realise eventually that it's an Air Force Radar station? It's a ballistic missile early warning radar station. And where is it exactly? Well, it's west of Prudhoe Bay and east of Point Barrow, which is the northernmost point in the United States along the Arctic Ocean. It's just a series of buildings with a small runway. And what the heck were you doing up there? This was in the mid-1970s, and a colleague of mine, Brian Hodson, an Englishman, and I were doing a long-term documentary on the construction of the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline, this 880-mile-long behemoth. We decided that uh, for a few days, we would go visit some Alaskan native villages and talk to and interview and hopefully photograph Alaskan natives and ask them what it felt like to be impacted by big oil and big money and obviously uh, many, many changes coming to the state of Alaska. We were in again in a helicopter. We passed Lonely, and the helicopter pilot checked in with Lonely. And I don't know, 40 miles perhaps west of Lonely, we ran into what the Alaskans call a whiteout, sort of a microburst of snow and wind. And, and you lose all visibility, of course, and you lose track with the horizon and the ground, and the winds are violent. And our helicopter pilot turned us around and asked to land at Lonely. 
it was snowing so hard, Lonely said, no, we couldn't land, that they were closed. And so we had the only one option, which was to outrun the snowstorm and make it back <laughs> on empty to Prudhoe Bay, which we miraculously did. So Lonely is a place where, again, my colleague and I could have perished. But I think that Lonely is also a wonderful metaphor somewhere west of Lonely for life on the road, as you well know, being a foreign correspondent, life on the road as a correspondent where you're tethered very tenuously to the home office, pre-cell phone and pre-internet days, certainly. You're tethered tenuously to the office at best. You're away from your loved ones. You're away from family. You're away from even the news in really remote spots. And yet I think, and I've researched the whole idea of creativity and interviewed some psychologists, I think that when we have that time alone to focus on our work can be very productive. And there are times where I just call a time out and say, why am I here? And what is the most important thing or things that I should be doing? And of course, as you know, when we go on an extended assignment, we start with one list and we end with a completely different list sometimes of what we think is important. So I think that you are lonely. And I think the trick as a foreign correspondent is to turn that isolation and loneliness into some productive time. And I know that that's not possible for every person. I've had colleagues who have had breakdowns, literally, um, being away from home for long extended periods of time. So uh, it's a good metaphor for life on the road. And uh, it worked. Now, my colleague, Brian Hodson, bless his heart, used that phrase in his manuscript for the National Geographic story on the Alaska pipeline, and an editor deleted the phrase. No. So it was never published. And my colleague was crushed. And we actually adjourned to a bar near National Geographic in Washington after work and had several glasses of wine. And, 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 and Brian was best man in my wedding. I told Brian, I said, I will get that published for you someday, Brian. I will get that line published. And so when I thought about doing a memoir, the title Somewhere West of Only was, you know, I, I had the title before I had the first picture. Well, it looks like it all came out very naturally. I have to say, as a person who cannot ever be trusted with a camera myself, <laughs> that I am, as a person who loves words, very impressed by the writing in your book, which means I have to read a couple of sentences. And this description that you make of this experience of being in this whiteout in a helicopter just really struck me. Um, you write... There are no shadows, no horizon or clouds, and all depth, perception and visual references are lost. And then you write, Our pilot radioed lonely, but its small airstrip was closed, and low on fuel, we set course for Dead Horse, some 120 miles distant. It was time to say a silent prayer. I guess I wonder, what does that mean for you? Sometimes I think in journalism, we feel like we're sort of on a mission a little bit and you talk about a higher calling. Do you sometimes think there's a sort of an overlap between religion and journalism? You say the word prayer in there and it just struck me. You know, I've I, I perhaps not thought of it in that way, Elaine, in that I have reported upon so many different faiths in the world, whether it's Buddhism or Sikhism or Christianity or whatever, and I was raised in, as a Christian. But going back to Vietnam 
everybody is saying a prayer when things are tough. You get so scared sometimes in situations like this, and I've heard Air Force fighter pilot friends of mine say this many times, you get so scared and you have so much adrenaline pumping that you want to go back and do it again. And I think that's as true of journalists as it is of warriors, which isn't to say that we are adrenaline junkies, but I think that we do feel compelled to apply our trade and apply our skills and our knowledge to the stories that we think are important. And I have missed, my daughters can tell you all about it, Mm -hmm. and they're grown women. I have missed many ballet recitals and concerts and football and soccer games and Thanksgivings and only one Christmas in the Persian Gulf with the U.S. Navy during the tanker war in the mid-1980s when the Iranians were blowing up oil tankers traversing the Persian Gulf. You know, for me, it's always been about the story. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not about, am I going to get a picture that can go in a gallery or certainly your salary isn't going to increase. It's about covering the story. And, you know, early in my career, I was being briefed about what it took to be a National Geographic photographer. And an editor who, you know, was a little scared of, he told me, he said, look, your job here is to bring back the best possible photograph that can be taken of some person or place or idea or trend. And he said, we have only one standard, and that's excellence. Now, I have turned that around in the classroom, and I very frequently on the first day of class make students aware of the fact that their competition isn't in our classrooms, and it's not on this campus. It's with the smartest kids at the best universities in the world. And excellence should be their only standard because that's how the world works. But it was kind of a rude introduction to me at National Geographic that your job is to make the best possible picture. So it's way more than a job. It was a calling, absolutely. And of course, today's young photojournalists face enormous (laughs) hurdles and challenges not just in terms of you know personal safety and so on, which is a whole set of problems that have become, as you've already been talking about, even more perhaps more extreme acute. than they were. Yes, absolutely. Um, but not only that, but just getting paid. Getting paid. The number of staff jobs at newspapers seems to be constantly shrinking. So how do you talk to your young students about this in the classroom? Well, it's difficult, Elaine. I wish that in some ways we could be at once here at Indiana University and universities across the country. At once, I wish we could be stronger in our liberal arts curriculum because students need to know how to think and they need to know history and they need to know languages and so forth. But I also think that we probably can make our students more entrepreneurial. How do you brand yourself? How do you find ways of making multiple uses of your travels and your talents and so forth because it's a freelance world today and that is very frightening to me and it's very frightening, no doubt, to our students that there are very few secure staff jobs, whether it's a newspaper or a magazine. Even in broadcasting, um, many videographers are freelancers. So I think, frankly, the most talented or the most driven, and those are two different things, Mm the most talented and the most driven students are going to be fine because, you know, the obstacles to them are just obstacles. They are not insurmountable. They will find ways to express themselves. But 
it's not a case that we can find internships for all of our students sometimes. The media has contracted, mm-hmm. and the media is even held in disrepute today by our president and mm-hmm. others. And so this is not a profession that seems that attractive to some families and some students. So I think some of it on our part, and you know this, is coaching and encouragement and setting examples, being mentors, being role models. I think that's important. But it is a different time than when we entered the profession, and it's a more challenging time. There's just absolutely no doubt about it. I, I had never taken a photograph in color and I'm asked of Washington, D.C. for a job interview at National Geographic. And I, I write this in the book. I have repeated it to, by now, thousands of students. I asked the director of photography, a very gruff guy who had a sign outside his door, please wipe knees before entering. Um, I asked him at the end of the day, why am I here? I've never taken a color photograph for publication. And he said, well, we can make the picture any damn color we want. And then he looked over his glasses at me and he said, I'm hiring you for the way you think and the way you see the world. And I really let that sink in. And I've used that in every class I've taught at IU because it is so expressive of what people in every profession and every walk of life are looking for in young people, people who can think critically, who can have concerns and passions, talk about the world. And then for young people who have a unique voice that doesn't have to be some great gift of talent, it just has to be a vision or a voice in their writing, their reporting, their photography that is in some way original. And the same can be said for law or medicine or accounting or anything else as far as I'm concerned. I'm Elaine Monaghan, and I'm here with photojournalist Steve Raymer on Profiles. Part of your story that really intrigues me, because I've spent rather a lot of time in this part of the world that I'm going to ask you about now, is the travels that you took in Russia and and into Siberia with Barbara, your wife, who very luckily for you, (laughs) speaks extremely good Russian. So what was that like traveling with your partner in the world into these obscure parts of of the globe? I should go back just a bit, Elaine. I had the opportunity to have one of these mid career sabbaticals. And I was accepted at both Harvard for the Neiman program and at Stanford, the Knight program. And I remember talking to the late Howard Simons at Harvard. He was a Washington Post editor of Woodward and Bernstein's. And Howard Simon said, we want to have you. But he said, this is going to be the same old shtick as National Geographic. You wear a sport jacket and a tie that's kind of loose at the neck. And you hear the same people talking to your classmates as you would probably find at lunch at National Geographic. He said, if it were me, I'd go to California. So I went to Stanford for a little more than a year. And Condi Rice was my academic advisor, which was uh, fortunate. But Russian really never took. Uh, I'm not very good at languages, and the uh, language teacher that I had when I came back from that year-long sabbatical at Stanford, she was she was arrested by the FBI 
As a pointer for the Soviet intelligence services, the FBI came to me and said that she had State Department wives as her students in the afternoon. I was with her in the morning. And they want to know what if she ever made overtures to have a social relationship, blah, blah, blah. With me, she was just fine. But she was arrested and jailed and then ultimately traded for someone. So my teacher was arrested. Well, fortunately, Barbara and I were dating. And uh, I had gotten very sick with typhoid fever on my first trip to Siberia. So I said I would never come back to Russia. I met a lawyer in the Moscow airport traveling back to Washington. I, I was muttering. I said, I'm never coming back to this country without somebody on my side. And she said, you know, we have just the person for you. She's working in our law firm right now. She's a, a Yaley and uh, has worked in various places in Washington. So unbeknownst to me, the lawyer faxed Barbara's resume to the editor of National Geographic. And Barbara and I met at Dulles Airport outside of Washington in Virginia. And we were going first to Moscow to open an exhibition of the 100 years of great National Geographic photography with all these executives, and Barbara was the interpreter. And then we were headed off with a colleague of ours who's a writer to Siberia, and it was, um, I think, three months in the wintertime. So what was that like? Well, having a young woman that you're very much interested in as as your interpreter, I suppose you are at your best. We're all at our best when we're courting or dating, even in Siberia. So I was trying to be at my best. But you know this from working in the former Soviet Union. It was a constant exercise in frustration on one sense because both countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, had this system of open and closed cities. There were certain cities that we could go to as, quote, tourists or foreign journalists, but most of the country was locked away from American journalists. So getting the permission and the paperwork to go to, say, Norilsk, which Norilsk is a big nickel mining city above the Arctic Circle, and it's actually Norilsk nickel is listed on the New York Stock Exchange now. Getting the paperwork to go to Norilsk was just unbelievable, and the escorts and so forth. And so we would move around Siberia by having to go back to Moscow. If we wanted to go north by 100 miles or south by 100 miles, we'd still have to fly all the way back to Moscow to get more permission than papers. So in that sense, it was sort of a lot of uh, standing around and pleading for permission. Siberia is vast. I mean, uh, 4,000 miles of space with uh, interesting uh, ethnic groups, with great mineral wealth, sort of only the railroad or air to traverse it. Uh, But... It was at a time that glasnost or openness was sort of really striking uh, Russian society, 1989 and 1990. And Barbara and I felt like goodwill ambassadors Mm -hmm. because people had never met an American. We almost every day would meet people who had literally never seen an American. I can think of a day at Lake Baikal or near Lake Baikal, which is one of the world's largest inland lakes. And a lady asked Barbara if she could see a dollar bill. And Barbara pulled out her billfold and gave it to the lady. And the lady just jumped as if we'd offered rat poison because it was illegal for a Soviet citizen to possess foreign currency. So she just sort of carefully examined the dollar from a distance. But it was at a time when Russians were so hungry for their history and with a little bit of incentive to people, we were able to get off the beaten track and explore old gulag prison camps for political prisoners. We found a very willing... uh, helicopter pilot who accepted 
he accepted U.S. dollars in the bushes. Uh, Barbara went in the bushes and gave him some U.S. dollars from my expense account. And on Sundays, he took his Aeroflot helicopter, and we went gulag hunting along the Arctic Ocean coast. We did this several times. We found old prison camps and so forth. And people across Siberia were just absolutely hungry to know what had come before. And so in that sense, it was it was all new, and it was a grand adventure while most correspondents were stuck in Moscow covering Gorbachev and kind of the unfolding political situation. And to have Barbara with us, and Barbara and I have done a number of projects. I did a book on St. Petersburg, Russia, for example. To have Barbara there to talk to local people and understand local people and in the days of the Soviet Union to get us away from our minders and guides and go to people's homes was really important. Uh, it was essential. If I had any success in projects in the Soviet Union, it was because of Barbara, not because of my photography or writing. I'm sure she would say very generous things about your part in it all, Steve. Barbara's very famous for saying, knowing nothing about a subject has never stopped Steve from doing a book about it. (laughs) And for example, the book I did just before this was about Calcutta. And I have five or six friends here on the faculty who are natives of Calcutta. And I was just absolutely intrigued by the city. And so I set off to do a book about it. Oxford University Press mercifully published it, but at least with this book, I was acquainted with the subject matter. Well, actually, this brings us to a really important question, I think. I'm sure there are many different answers to this question, but how much do you need to know about a place to take a photograph of it, a good photograph of it, or to make a good photograph of it? That's a wonderful question because I have two answers. One is you should be well acquainted enough with your subject matter in general that what you're photographing has some importance to the story that you're doing. Now, which isn't to say you're going to turn your back on a great situation or a great photograph because it doesn't fit into your the story you're trying to tell, but you should have enough grounding in the subject matter that you know why you're there in the most general terms, you know why you're there, you know why this is important, and you can sort out what is important as opposed to what people are offering you or people are proposing. But I think that there's no substitute for seeing something for the first time. That fresh eye, that fresh vision. I can go back to a place 30 times, and I find that I'm imitating myself, which is the worst. It's a waste of creative energy to imitate yourself. I think that seeing something for the first time and that capturing that moment first in your mind's eye and then with your camera is just one of the great privileges of our job. Listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Elaine Monaghan. Our guest today is photojournalist Steve Raymer, a professor emeritus at IU's Media School who spent more than two decades as a National Geographic photojournalist. He's here to tell us about his life in pictures and to share stories beautifully told in his latest book, published by Indiana University Press, 
somewhere west of Lonely. Steve, we've been talking about a very important person in your family, your wife, Barbara. But in the early 1990s, another family member came to the fore in your storytelling life at a time when you were preparing a book about Vietnam. And you found yourself meeting many returning American veterans who were doing charitable work for and with the Vietnamese, including a certain Albert Skinner, the father of your wife. Would you like to read a a little bit from your book about that episode? Well, thank you, Elaine. I would be privileged to. I write toward the end of chapter two. One of those returning veterans was my late father-in-law, Albert Skinner. Accompanied by two minders from the foreign ministry in Hanoi, Al and I drove from Saigon to Hanoi in a cramped Peugeot 406 sedan jammed with my camera equipment and our luggage. Our route took us from the central highlands and the old battlefields and bases like Dalat, An Khai, and the Mingyang Pass to My Lai, an out-of-the-way hamlet where officers ordered U.S. troops to murder hundreds of unarmed South Vietnamese civilians in 1968 to the port city of Da Nang and the white sands beaches of China Beach, the ancient imperial capital of Wei with its magical sunsets on the Perfume River and the old combat base at Quezon, where U.S. Marines were besieged for 77 days under a day and night barrage of mortars and rockets from the North Vietnamese. Two accidents with motorcyclists and four flat tires later, Al and I arrived in the capital of Hanoi in time for the Tet Lunar New Year celebration, a festival with flowers and gift-giving that at the time also celebrated with, was celebrated with days and nights of fireworks, now banned. In 1994, with no diplomatic or trade relations between our two countries, Al and I were just two of a handful of Americans allowed to stay in Hanoi during this important celebration of the Vietnamese calendar, this most important celebration of the Vietnamese calendar. Al was a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel, a Protestant chaplain, and a soldier's soldier who had earned two bronze stars for valor in Vietnam and a purple heart for his wounds while caring for troops under fire. On a blazing hot tarmac at Hanoi's Nobai Airport, a U.S. State Department official asked Al to say an invocation, an ecumenical prayer, over the coffins of 13 missing-in-action American soldiers before their remains were flown to Hawaii for identification. With tears in his eyes, Al later told me the repatriation ceremony and his central role in it brought him a closure with the war that few other Americans would experience. He left Vietnam a man at peace and with a mission to encourage fellow veterans to see Vietnam as a country, not a war. That's a wonderful story and a very, very moving one to hear. And it strikes me as fascinating that you and Al had this moment where he was almost acting like a journalist. It was He was reframing his homeland's perception of a country. Absolutely. Right? Al went to Vietnam with a, an American infantry unit as their chaplain, and he told me many times that the unit for which he was the chaplain, they lost about a third of the soldiers killed or wounded, mostly killed. And it was a long time for Al to get over that combat experience. of, And, of course, he was badly wounded as well. And for Al to have that opportunity, that closure, to send the final few Americans home from Vietnam and to do it 
you know, through his calling, through his profession as a, a minister, he said, you know, it was just a privilege that very few Americans have the opportunity to experience. And Al became a real, an envoy, uh, a diplomat, or I'm trying to think of the right word. He, he took his color slides and he traveled all over the American West. He lived in Colorado Springs. He traveled all over the American West to speak to veterans groups with that mission that this is a country, not a war. This is a country that's long ago put behind it the war it had had with America, with the United States, and that it was on the move, that it was moving forward, perhaps not politically as fast as we would like, but certainly economically and culturally and reaching out and establishing at that time in the 1990s diplomatic trade relations with all of its neighbors and so forth, that it was a country transformed from what we who served there remembered. You know, few people have that opportunity. And uh, it was almost by a fluke. A fellow from the New York Times told me about the repatriation ceremony. I got permission for us to be there. And at the last minute, I introduced Al to this fellow from the State Department. And he, right away, the light went on in his eyes and came up to my father-in-law with a, a bullhorn. And he said, uh, well, he used a, a kind of a barnyard epithet, but he said, "This is the Vietnamese are not going to like this." But he said, "This indeed is our ceremony." So, Chaplain Skinner, we would all be just honored if you would say a prayer to begin this uh, service. And uh, it was one of those moments that, uh, in fact, the fellow from the New York Times included it in his story. So you were writing the story. (laughs) It just unfolded. (laughs) Yes. So actually, there was something you said there that made me realize how very much like an act of journalism this was, because you talked about how Al had this wonderful opportunity to process what had happened. As you put it in your book, he left Vietnam a man at peace. And you also write a lot about the problem of PTSD in journalists Mm -hmm. and this is something that I'm sure we both talk about a lot in our classroom. We do. Helping young people to prepare themselves for not just necessarily for being in conflict, but being exposed to terrible content mm-hmm. as a consumer of media, as a producer of media, and just life, <laughs> how to process difficult things that you might hear. And it strikes me listening to that story how... As journalists, we also have that privilege, and the privilege comes when you tell your story. Have you had experiences like that that stick out for you? Elaine, I hint at it at the end of, I think, Chapter 3, but I don't delve into it. I have had a a real bout with PTSD, and, and it's made it easier to talk to students in my reporting war and terrorism class about it, at least what two episodes or examples in the book. But What I'm thinking about is I was involved in a terrorist bombing in the Kabul, Afghanistan airport. The first 15 minutes I was in Afghanistan. I'm waiting for my luggage and a terrorist bomb goes off, explodes. And, um, you know, the concussive effect just knocked all all of us to the floor. And you're laying there in this smoke and uh, uh, fine powder and debris and so forth. And I was full of blood and I patted myself down to see where I was hurt and I didn't appear to be hit. And then I saw the guy to my right had his arm severed by flying glass. And so I put a tourniquet on it with my belt. And there were a number of people who weren't injured. So ultimately, those of us who were not injured or barely injured, 
started to get the wounded out of this baggage claim area and through the customs area out into the parking lot. And I eventually made my way to the hotel and bought some local clothes and got the job done. And it was a story about Kabul under Soviet occupation. But then I was off to Stanford University where everybody seemed to drive a Mercedes in Palo Alto and everybody took Friday afternoon off and life was beyond perfect and beautiful. And I had horrible, horrible, horrible insomnia. So bad that one Sunday I went to the emergency room mm-hmm. at the at Stanford University Hospital. And the physician said, look, I've got time. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your life. <laughs> I said, well, I've just come back from Afghanistan and I was nearly killed and um, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, I can understand why Palo Alto seems like a very foreign place to you right now. And he got me the help I needed. But I wasn't aware of how long it takes to process these traumatic experiences. And you and I talked to students about this. You don't have to have a personal trauma. You can just be a passive witness to trauma. How many car accidents do local journalists go to, for example? Or um, today, I mean, we've had 126 mass shootings in the United States so far this year. I mean, this is something possibly any local journalist is going to cover as a, as a school shooting or a mass shooting. So we become passive witness to trauma, and that does have an effect on us and our mental health. Now, in our profession, we seem to have a few enlightened news organizations that understand the mental health of their employees is as important as their physical health, but very few. And from my point of view, it's a real issue. And we have to constantly kind of be on guard for, yes, it doesn't affect us today. We're going to get the job done because we've got a job to do. But next week, next month, next year, have you processed what you saw? Right. I know you had, I believe it was a fellowship at the DART Center, Mm -hmm. which uh, for anyone listening who's involved in journalism or has someone they care about involved in journalism, the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma has excellent resources to help people who are experiencing trauma or covering difficult stories. What was your experience like there? Oh, it's a wonderful fellowship in two or three weeks at uh, Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism because... We had psychologists and counselors and journalists and editors and hospital administrators and an array of healthcare professionals talking to us first about the resources that Columbia University and the DART Center have developed for journalists to help them cope with these very same issues. But I think also to delve deeper into what is, for example, PTSD or how to cover trauma in uh, local news. And I, I recall uh, we spent all day looking at a terrible tornado that just demolished uh, parts of Joplin, Missouri some years ago, and how difficult this was for many journalists to know how to cover this because these were their friends, their neighbors, in some cases their own homes that had been destroyed. So you don't have to go to a distant battlefield, certainly, to experience your own personal trauma or to really scratch your head and say, how do I approach my neighbor and ask the questions I know I need to ask, but do it with empathy and compassion and ask the question, but not in a way that's going to deepen the tragedy. Uh, For example, 
I had no idea how local news has to cope with tragedy on much the same scale as those of us who cover foreign events. You know, those of us who cover the world, we, for the most part, don't know the people on whom we're reporting, Mm -hmm. unless it's a a conflict where we have made friends with the combatants and been embedded uh, with a unit. We are coming, we're parachuting into a, a situation about which we know very little, and then we're we're back out. So when it's your neighbor that you are interviewing, how do you do it without causing further trauma? Uh, so we got we got into the weeds on this and many other issues, and I would say that the Europeans, from my reading of those several weeks at Columbia, Europeans are a little further ahead than we are here in America in terms of training journalists to be those passive witnesses of trauma. It happens every day, and it's part of our definition of news when, you know, something out of the ordinary happens. So I know that one of the bits of advice people give each other at times Mm -hmm. like this is to look out for your colleagues and see how they're doing and check in with them and pop your head in the door and say, hey, do you want to have a cup of tea? And it strikes me um, that, there, you know, apart from cups of tea, there's another great tradition in my home country that you apparently are the world's leading expert on, which is the local pub. The pub. (laughs) Which would be another great place to go and have a chat with your neighbour. You have a wonderful book with amazing photographs of pubs. In fact, there's one in this book we're talking about today, somewhere west of Lonely, I believe, the old Cheshire cheese, which made Mm. me laugh because that was one of the points of reference in my life as a graduate trainee journalist at Reuters in London many years ago. But it also made me laugh because I think you have a habit of referring to yourself as ye old professor, which I'm assuming is something you picked up from British pubs. But tell us about that. What is this deal with you and British pubs? Well, I haven't quite finished this book, Elaine, on British pubs, but I'm trying to, as we speak, finish this book. I've had a fascination with pubs since my first trip to Great Britain, to your home country of Scotland. I was in Glasgow, Scotland in the mid-1970s reporting on Great Britain's economic downfall. And I was in a slum called the Gorbals, and it was snowing. And some local Glaswegian kids, whom I couldn't understand, decided that they were going to pull the Nikon cameras off of my shoulders and uh, kind of do me in. And I took refuge in the first place that looked like it was open, which happened to be a pub. And I had never been in a pub. And I asked the publican, it's snowing outside and it's one o'clock in the afternoon. I asked the publican for a cup of coffee. And she thought the whole, the whole bar just went silent. And the publican pulled me aside and he said, lad, you know, we have this, this, and this, but you don't ask for coffee in a pub. But then he said and that he had been in the Royal Navy and had traveled often to Boston during World War II and he liked America and Americans. He made me a cup of coffee. But it was such a refuge. And over the years, kept thinking, the pub is a refuge. That's part of its, uh, you know, its genetic code is, is a refuge. It's also a social gathering. It's a place where you can be alone with yourself and your thoughts. And it's a place where you can strike up a conversation with a total stranger. In the class consciousness that I've experienced in Great Britain at close range, because photojournalists don't have quite the same status in Great Britain as they do, say, for example, in France— That class consciousness is absent in the pub. The pub is like the mosque in the sense where in the mosque, everyone takes their shoes off and they're equal before God. Well, you walk into the pub and 
it doesn't make any difference who you are. There's a sense of equality there that I have always admired. There's a sense of history in so many pubs. And then when I found the news angle that is now so well reported that on average 12 pubs a week are closing in Great Britain, that for the first time since the Norman Conquest, half of all the villages and towns in Great Britain are dry with no pub. The pubs are indeed threatened by many things, the smoking ban, the high cost of the tax on beer, the uh, drunk driving laws, which are much stricter in Great Britain than they are here in the United States. I mean, social media, there's, you know, there's a whole array of social and cultural factors, but the pubs are in fact threatened. And this is an institution that goes back, you know, 1,500 years to the Roman times or 2,000 years. And, and certainly it goes back three, 400 years to the coaching inns. The journalist in me said, there's a story here. Plus, it's a place where early in my career, a kind-hearted publican really did give me refuge. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to finish this book as we speak. Well, I hope I didn't bring up a sore subject. Not a bit. <laughs> I'm glad to talk about the pub. So and, do you ha- I have to ask, since I thought you had the best title in the history of titles with Somewhere West of Lonely, have you got one for this one yet? Well, uh, only a working title. I think the public house, um, something about Great Britain's, just not quite yet. It, right. it, it hasn't come to me. Well, we'll look forward it to it hasn't come when to it me. comes. It, and hopefully it's coming soon. So sometimes titles come to you and sometimes they don't. Uh, but like a good beer, we will find it. <laughs> I've been speaking today with Steve Raymer, a photojournalist, a professor, a storyteller, and it's been my pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for being with us. This is Elaine Monahan for Profiles. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.